Hey folks, Ed Williams here uh, on my podcast today. Uh, this podcast series really is about the business of medicine. And I don't like the word practice management because I think that it misrepresents what we do when we try to run a business. Um, my, my guest today is Dr. Brent Cook, uh, who's a board certified facial plastic surgeon in, uh, and native of Iowa. I've heard him speak many, many times and, and this guy gets it. And I think, you know, my mission with this is to really help teach our younger folks and mentor people along the lines and have this unbiased by industry. And I think, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this because one of my biggest frustrations at the meetings is that um, uh, you know people people are not totally honest because they're afraid of hurting people's feelings or you know the industry spent a lot of money to be there. Um, so I, I want I ask some very frank questions. Uh, I'm going to give, give a selfish plug to a book that I just wrote. It's uh, the White Coat Entrepreneur, and it's really geared toward um, you know again plastic surgeons, facial plastic surgeons got a number of chapters in there, you know, resetting the mindset because uh, let's face it, it's different to run a business than it is to just see, be a doctor. And I think we inherently are trained and wired the wrong way. Um, I talk about multiple profit centers and then finally had a success, succession and exit plan. So Dr. Uh, Cook um, was kind enough to join me this afternoon. And again, I know he, I've heard him speak, so I know he, he gets it. Um, and I think, Brent, you've written a, a, a book or two yourself, right? I have, yeah. And thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. I look forward to, uh, to reading yours. So, yeah. My, um, my last one of the three was, is uh, entitled Raving Patients. And it's, it's really, I've always been passionate about it, communication skills for healthcare professionals. I think we've lost the, the customer service aspect of medicine. And that's really what it, it was an effort to help, you know, young doctors, young dentists, nurses, and healthcare professionals really learn to communicate with patients again and get back in the business of helping patients understand what we're trying to help them with. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's great. Unfortunately, check this out. I, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal of a, a family physician who just quit. They were so frustrated with their job, if you will. And I know one who actually quit recently that they, they, they one I know just quit altogether. And she's 38 years old. But this one actually said, stop dealing with insurance and basically just charged a reasonable fee. And all of a sudden, you know, three months later, they love life and they love it because they're, they're being a doctor again, doing what they, but you, it's hard to focus on patient care or focus, focus on customer service, right? When we're so, uh, you know, many of our colleagues are so bogged down with, with uh, regulatory and compliance garbage. So, it absolutely right? is. It's, over, it's overwhelming and it takes away, it takes away even, uh, uh, even, uh, achieving a profit in the business that you're trying to run. So yeah, yeah it's like it's so overwhelming. It's kind of self-defeating even. Yeah. So let me, I'm going to, I'm going to get right into things here, you know, Brent, if you don't mind, because I, there's a yeah. lot of things I want to pick your brain about and I want to get some answers for, for people trying to figure their way uh, yeah, as young plastic surgeons. You know, how did you, you know, your journey, I mean, how did you end up starting a private practice in, in, uh, in the area of facial plastic surgery, you know, surgery, you know, it's, it's a daunting, it's daunting to think about. It is, it is. We're entrepreneurs and, and to come about that is scary. I, um, I'm a farm kid from North Iowa. I grew up 
from nothing and and it's been quite a journey but i went to uh, undergrad and my original degree is in finance and insurance to begin with Interesting. and so i came about medicine late in the game uh switched into taking my prerequisites and that type of thing and went on to medical school um, art always came easy for me or I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I liked plastic surgery and then, you know, ended up here. And so the finance and insurance degree really training stuck with me and the understanding of that and the, the small business classes and those types of things really kind of stuck with me. And I think that's helped me a lot. I moved from when I finished my um, fellowship in Indiana after residency in Iowa City or University of Iowa on to Des Moines and joined a single facial plastic surgeon who was looking for an end game, as you mentioned in your lead in. And so I uh, joined him and he was with me for about five years and then retired. And then I was on my own for um, about uh, seven years and I have had a a new partner with me for six years now. So it's been, it's kind of its own evolution um, through that. We have two surgeons in the practice, one PA injector, and we have a, a spa side, which has three estheticians and um, in our own uh, building that I own and, and that type of thing. So it's, it's been a fun journey. So you've got, uh, I, one of the questions I was going to ask you about is, you know, yeah. tell me about your practice. So you've got two facial plastic surgeons. You've got, um, it looks like I've seen pictures, you know, I've looked at your website. It looks like you have you know, a good sized staff and you're dealing with the challenges of, of uh, you know, running a business like everyone else, right? Yeah, um, yeah you're exactly right. We have uh, a staff of 15 here. There's two. We do both, well, obviously, exclusively facial plastic surgery. My young colleague is, happens to be my nephew, which I'm very, very grateful that he's here. He's just fantastic. Awesome. And the partnership has gone great. But he, he loves the reconstructive type of things. I love the more artistic cosmetic aspects of it. So that the partnership works wonderfully That's that great. way. I very, I do very little insurance type of reconstructive work anymore. And it's more the artistic, uh, cosmetic elective work, um, that I do. But we see about between two to 250 patient visits a week. That includes some of the surgeries and things. Yeah. And our PA sees about 50 injectables. She does some, um, laser treatments and things like that. Our estheticians do about a hundred procedures a week or so, mm -hmm. various different treatments of such. So. Well, that's, um, that, that gives me a pretty good feel. Now, you and I do have something in common. Um, I worked ten, 10 years on a dairy farm, so we, we didn't have beef cattle, but, uh, but that was my only job. And, I, you know, I came into it late in the game, too. I, I was an ag major uh, as an undergrad. And um, so I wish, like you, I wish I, I wish I had a finance or accounting background or took some. I think if I were to do one thing, you know, get some advice to somebody, you know, early, early on, that if you don't have an, an accounting background or finance at least take an accounting course i've learned by the school of hard knocks which brings me into my next question i mean you've you know you've learned you had a good foundation in accounting you've taken in, in finance you've taken accounting um but you made i'm sure like all of us you know and i've heard this from people that say hey you know is it, you could run circles around an mba part of that is just a school of hard knocks what you know you made some you made some mistakes early on absolutely Early on, what were, you know, because this is where our young people learn. What were the biggest mistakes you learned early on? Yeah, yeah. Early on, 
I, this is particularly when, and I think my my partner that I joined was making the same mistake, but he and I continued on to that, but we, I trusted, I'd like to describe it as trusting singularity in the accounting processes that you do. And what, too often when we're, when we're a very, very small practice, we will pick an accountant and we'll say that this accountant can help us with bookkeeping. They can also help us do our taxes. They can monitor our accounts. They can help us with bill pay and accounts receivable. And pretty soon you have one fox running the hen house in, in sometimes. I hate to use a farm reference there, yeah. but I got burned big time with it. And there were, so I, I came about one wasn't following the, the sales tax that came with the product sales that we had incorporated into the practice and things. And, and, and you know, in most states, I, I took uh, it on the chin a time or two with yeah. uh, trusting a singularity in accounting. And I think it's good advice to have a tax, you know, professional monitoring or checks and balances with bookkeeping type of services with legal, you know, against ser- legal services, et cetera. So. Yeah. So, you know, said a different way, I, I've read this. For, first of all, we can have a whole podcast on, uh, you know, uh, accounting and uh, bookkeeping and those kind of things. I mean, in the, yeah. state, in the state of New York, you know, they will shut you down for sales tax. Um, and that's, you know, may, it may be a represent a very small part of your business, but you can get in some big trouble with that. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I miss, miss mistakes I made early on, you know, so you, you can take it on the cash receiving part of things and, you know, theft. And there's an old saying, right? If you haven't been stolen from, you just don't know about it, right? Exactly. But, I agree completely. Yeah. But on the other side, you know, the the other thing is the, the old saying, um, many of us fail, I think, in abdicating. In other words, we think we're delegating like you were. Um, and we're giving that responsibility without really checking, you know, following the checks and balances. And that's how we can get burned you you know you call it singularity trusting one person um but how would we know right exactly i think you're exactly right and that's exactly what happened and and we we i mean ignorance is not a defense of not paying sales taxes on on products in your practice and i learned that very very quickly and fortunately that via it was remedied and that was okay but but you know that's the that's the school of hard knocks right there you have to have checks and balances you have to have one um and it's worth every single dime audit 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 periodically yeah um even when i came in just with my background i came in joined my new partner and I took a look at the books and I said, I said, Jeff, you have, you have over six digits in accounts receivable that's 90 days or more over. I said, you could hire someone for 50,000 a year purely to do this, yeah. purely to do your accounts receivable. And that would pay for itself right there. Even if you collected half. Yeah. I said, let's start right there. You know, there's a, there's another classic example of something that, you know, um, you just don't, you're just not aware of. You know, well, you know, the problem, the problem with us is, is, and I don't want to say just surgeons, but as physicians, you know, we're, we're trained that being busy in the operating room is, the, is, uh, you know, gives us worth. Right. And so we tend to spend our time where we think we're valuable. And, uh, and again, we want to de- delegate, we want to give this off to somebody, but in, in reality, we end up 
you know, abdicating responsibility. And, and, and that's, that's how we get burned. And I can, I mean, I could go on and on about, you know, how I've been burned. Um, but let me ask you, because I think this is part of the problem, you know, how are most medical practices, how do they differ from most other small, you know, businesses, you know, the business people, they laugh at us. They, they, they snicker. They don't really think we run a business. I beg to differ because we do run a business where I have, but you know, there's, there's something inherently very different about our model that makes it difficult. So, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, how are medical practices so different than most other small businesses? I agree completely. They don't, to an extent with cosmetic elective procedures, it, it follows Keynesian economics of the supply and demand and, you know, raising prices to meet the, to meet demand and et cetera and so on. However, for colleagues and I'm, I was one of them and I, we are still one of them in our practice uh, with my partner. We're beholden to codes and the whims of large payers and we don't get a choice on setting our prices. Our prices are set. There's no, there's no grocery store that has the customers, you know, set the prices and then they have to deal with the expenses beside, behind the scenes because this is the only thing that the price is set. That's essentially what's happening with insurance is that we're beholden to the codes and the whims of the payers and therefore a fixation on what comes in. And that gets weighed against rising costs of staff, rising costs of medical insurance for your team, the ever-rising cost of running practices, the rising costs of technology within practices that we have to, to meet up with, the requirements for electronic medical records, now the new requirements, at least in my state, um, for um, e-filing of prescriptions and those types of things. So yeah. there's costs involved with all of that except the concurrent collections do not rise to meet it because we're beholden to insurance companies that way. Yeah. There isn't small practice, small businesses in general don't run that way. No, I mean, I guess if you ran some kind of an, uh, you know, let's just say you did uh, collision work on cars, you're depending on insurance companies, but you still have a chance to, yeah. to negotiate. And, and we really, we really don't. I think we're all too small to negotiate. And I, I dare say, you know, one of my underlying themes is, you know, physicians, if they don't pay attention, we, we always got to get screwed. Right. Because, um, you know, so one of the things, you know, one of the things that I, I really believe that makes uh, a medical practice, even let's just say we're doing aesthetic, just a fever service aesthetic practice, and that's it. Um, whether it's that or insurance, one of the things that makes it very challenging for us and different from small businesses that, and I got a buddy, I got a lot of friends that are in business, right? And, and I, I tend to, I have an entrepreneurial spirit, so I tend to hang around these people more. Um, but, you, you know, my, my friend, uh, you know, who runs, uh, has 300 employees or, or my other one who has, you know, maybe 50 employees and runs, a, you know, um, an RV dealership. Um, the difference between what we do and what they do is that we still are required to be the technician, you know, uh, a great deal of our time, which then when do you run a business, you know, and I, and I think so many of us like run a business as an afterthought and that makes it very challenging because we value our time. We feel like we need to be busy, but yet we're not spending time to work on the business. And I haven't asked you this question, but I'm going to ask you this question because I bet you I know the answer. Sure. Do you spend, do you spend, they take deliberate time during the, you know, during the work week, not in the evening and not just on the weekends to work on your business with either yourself or your team. 
during the work week. Yeah. Probably not still to this day, not enough. Um, but we do meet, um, uh, once a week with, with our, um, marketing manager, with our office manager, my partner and I, and even my partner and I, you know, follow closely the, the books and the collections from the spa side in comparison to what we've collected on this side and, and those types of things. So we do follow those things pretty closely. We also follow, um, inventory a lot closer than we used to with yeah. more and more products and, and those, not just skincare, but the products that we inject, you know, our, our consumables that we use, like you do in your practice. Those, those things, I think, run under the radar sometimes with practices like ours. It, it, you, you begin not to realize what you're paying on. And those things are most certainly negotiable. All of those things are negotiable and you have to stay ahead of it, stay ahead of every single vendor, whether that's your consumables vendor, but even the other vendors that, that you use in the practice, this right down to the sutures and the towels and the, and everything else that you use, the computer, um, um, your IT company that helps you with your computer system, always getting new quotes and, and, and turning over new ideas for those. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to stay on top of it. I mean, I, I dare say that, um, most of us and I compare don't spend as much time as we should on business development, on strategic planning, on uh, you know putting looking at our KPIs and and putting together dashboards and things that a lot of people do um, in other aspects of businesses. What is what's if you were to just reflect now for a few minutes, you know, what has been maybe you know your your biggest um, you know your biggest mistake. From the beginning of, uh, you know, and you don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but, but biggest mistake you've made since you started practice? I would say it was not understanding the 80-20 rule, not, yeah. which in, in my ask, in, in my practice was not switching from insurance to more of a cosmetic surgery practice that I truly loved because I was afraid I thought that I would be losing money when in fact I was losing money and six digits. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking yeah. lots of money yeah. by not switching sooner than I did. Yep. I did not move away from insurance soon enough and realize that. Yeah. I mean, you know, fear is not a strategy, right? I mean, so yeah, many of us not. make decisions based on fear and, 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 you know, that 80, 20 thing. And for those who, who don't know what he's talking about, you know, take realizing that 20% of, your activity is 80% of your revenue and getting rid of the 10 or 15% of aggravation of your life that probably is, you know, eating up a ton of your time. Um, and it's hard to make those decisions, you know, because you're, you're turning down, you're turning some things down. Um, what about um, the biggest marketing mistake you ever made? I, the biggest marketing mistake I ever made, I think I was very, very slow to adopt, social media into my practice Same here. As, as early as I should. I should have done been in front of that much, much earlier than I, than I was. And perhaps right. it's because I'm not on the coast as, as close. There's an old saying that, you know, if the world comes to an end, you want to live in Iowa because everything happens here 10 years before it or after it happens on, you know, on the East or West coast. Yeah. So to some degree, um, but I've been yeah. very, I was slow to adopt social media into the practice and, and that I, I look at, looking back, I wish I had done that early on. Well, and me and you some, both. Some of the technology, just some of the lasers and the, and the other aspects of that, I, I was slow to adapt that. Yeah. Well, I, I was, I, I, you know, I'm not going to get into my story because this is 
I really want to hear about you, but you know, I, I was very slow to adapt to the to social uh, media and, and what have you. And you know what it was? I mean, we had a degree of a success and you know, you get, anytime one of my lessons here, one of my pearls is that anytime you become complacent, you get screwed. And you know, I was a little Nothing complacent. Like success. Yeah. You, yeah you know, and, and that's it. You can, you can always become a failure of your own success. And I was slow to adopt to it. And part of it, uh, quite honestly, I mean, Part of it is that, you know, you and I, when we grew up, you know, we, we spoke at the podium, we did humanitarian things because it was the right thing to do. And and it frustrates the hell out of me when, you know, the, the, the new world-renowned Beverly Hills plastic surgeon who's been in practice for two years has, you know, got a photo op every time you turn around and it's, look at me, I'm doing this. And so some of it just kind of turns my you know stomach a little bit. But the reality is we can't ignore this stuff, guys. I mean, right? Uh, yeah, I agree completely. I I should have adop- adopted yeah. that far sooner, and 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 not to. I, I yeah, I agree completely. Really- you know, and the thing is, all these social media things, they really take a couple of years to bear fruit. That was the lesson I learned. It really takes. You just got to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it, and mm-hmm. eventually, you know, um, you start to see some degree of success with it. Not to try to do everything because that can make you schizophrenic. Pick a couple things you enjoy doing and, and go after it. Let me ask you something that's always a challenge um, for everybody because I think this is where physicians fail because we tend to be nice people. Um, how do you how do you start? How do you deal? We all wake up one day, and you know, you and I are more seasoned, so you probably don't have it as much anymore. But and I have, I really have no one that that fits this category. How do you deal? Because you're in practice five, six years, seven years, maybe 10. And all of a sudden you have this indispensable employee and starts and they start to grow some, some entitlement wings. Um, I'm I'm, I bet you, I can't even see it, but I bet you're snickering at this. (laughs) Yes, you're correct. Uh, You probably, you're probably missing a bigger picture of the amount of damage that um, I've never regretted firing someone, but I have regretted um, keeping someone too long. And by firing, I don't mean that in a mean way. I don't. I, I've never regretted letting someone uh, go on to better opportunities where they fit in probably better, you know, than they did with with me. But I have never. I've never regretted letting someone um, go on to other opportunities that were causing a problem like that. But I have regretted looking back keeping keeping that what I thought was an indispensable employee too long. And so um, I would say that I don't completely believe, and this is easy for me to say now after 20 years, because I've never would have believed this to begin with, but it's just my advice. I'm offering it for free today. So take it if you wish a young, um, young position, but, um, but, you know, keep bear that in mind because I think sometimes um, the second part of my answer would be, Sometimes the problem employee that we think is indispensable is us. And I got caught up in that, um, you know, over a decade ago, too. Too many physicians, I think, have always been told, you are the smartest one in the class. You are successful. You have always succeeded. You've known nothing other than being right on the tests that you've taken and the success that you've had until it comes to running a business, until it comes to managing people. And, and sometimes we're not as qualified as we think we are to do some of these things. 
and we are essentially wondering why the water is rising when we're standing on the drain ourselves, so to speak. I, I and so you, sometimes you, we are our own indispensable problem employee. So yeah, what you're what you're basically describing, and I can't, I can't. Uh, so you know what we're talking about, folks, is is you know, how do you deal with the indispensable um, employee? And because we've all been there. And, uh, but, but I think what you're, what you're describing, uh, Brent, and I've been there before I, I back, I go back to the same thing. Running a business is not intuitive. We think because we're so smart that we can figure this shit out. You know, we figure, you know, I can figure this out. I'm a smart person. I've always in, and, and in reality, what you're talking about is, you know, failed leadership, right? We don't realize it's not about us. It, it's about the team and it's about, everything else. And we actually almost have to work to make ourselves, um, you know, indispensable because without the team, as you said, we're standing on the drain, the water's rising. Um, and so here's what we do. We do to, first of all, I, I can't agree. I can't agree with you, uh, more about when we have someone who becomes indispensable. Um, especially if they're, if, if they're not coachable, this is really what it comes down to to me is are they coachable and are they not? Unfortunately, sometimes you get too far down that road with them. Um, you know, we, we now, you know, it's part of our culture. It's part of our hire. We talk about, you know, we, it's not I, it's, and I'll give an example with patient care coordinator that says, you know, I booked, I booked whatever, $50,000 worth of surgery this week. And we say, no, 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 <laughs> we, we're a team. You know, because that, that starts to develop that, you know, indispensable mentality. The other thing we do um, is we make sure that everybody's cross-trained. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do when you have someone who's, in, you know, a, a valuable bookkeeper, for example, right? How do you get someone cross-trained and all that? But the bigger you get, the more you can cross-train and have another patient care coordinator and that sort of thing. Um, so we always make sure that we're – and finally, the last thing we do is we start to uh, – you know, we start to train someone for that position. And uh, because, you know, when they, when, you know, when they, 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 they become less dis in indispensable when they know that somebody else can do their job. Absolutely. Um, right. I mean, you I know, <clears throat> we had actually, I mean, we had one bookkeeper we had to do that too. And, you know, she ended up giving us notice. She was so pissed off we were training someone else, but you know what? We got rid of her. <laughs> And, and you were probably better off in the long run. Perhaps. Oh God! You know the crazy I, thing is when you get rid of one when you get rid of one of these indispensable people who don't get the culture and don't get the team thing, you'll find that people people are like, you know, whatever whatever we need to do, Doctor Williams, we're all you know we'll all chip in and like, whoa, <laughs> like should have done that before, right? You should have done that a long time ago. I, I agree completely. I had at, at certain times I had no idea how much better it could have been when I was trying to keep it good by keeping this one employee and instead letting that person move on made things much better, far yeah. more than I ever expected. Yeah. So, yeah, the, we, we, you know, it's the whole mother Teresa thing, right? We, we, you know, instead of being mother Teresa, we need to free them, let them go. And, yeah, you, you, know, you know, and I don't want to be so good, but some people are just mm -hmm. not a great fit and they're, they're you know, um, and I, I don't want to be, I, I don't want that to be taken the wrong way. If people are not a good fit, then it's not a good fit all the way around. And, oh, and yeah. There's, there's really no reason to be negative. There is no reason to be, have any malice, really. I, I've, you know, if, a, if a, an employee isn't a, very, uh, isn't a fit, if they 
seem to be a bit of a, a disease to the culture of your practice and things, I it's it's to their betterment as well to, to help them move on. It helps you and it helps them. Yeah. They're not obviously not happy being there. You're not happy that they are there. So there's there's only a double positive if you let help that person move on and yeah. and find another road and you, things get better for you. Yeah, and you know. We, we have a lot more people now than we did, you know, many, many years ago. And I have, I have less grief and, and what have you than I ever have. And part of it is because people that we hire or bring in now would never cut it back then. But you know what I think? I think we've done, we are fanatical about communication. And so there's never really a surprise when someone's not fitting. You know, if you're having that regular conversation with them about, you know, where they're doing well, and where they're, where they're, what they're struggling with, um, and then you you know try to get them the kind of guidance, but but if they, you know, the hire hire slowly and let you know fire quickly, it, it, you know if if someone's not a good fit, we don't drag it out for two or three years. You know you, you make the make the changes and um you know and move on. Um, so I have, I want something something came up this week I want to talk to you about because I sure. find this I find this fascinating. Um, you know our meetings have changed, and. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, um, one of my, you know, it used to be years ago, each of our societies put a meeting on for educational purposes. Uh, we, as stewards of our society, for us, it's the AFPRS, uh, we as stewards go to the meetings, um, pay, pay our dues, uh, pay to go to the meetings, and we willingly give and get on the podium and teach because... Part of the Hippocratic Oath is to teach and uh, and to pass it on, if I, if I will call it that. Correct, right? yeah. You, so, you and I have for years and years, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that's what you do, and I'm okay with that. Um, so, you know, fast forward. Um, I can't open my mailbox each day, my inbox, without seeing another meeting in Monaco, another meeting here, another meeting here. And what's happened is about 20, 25 years ago, um, you know, a couple of our colleagues and, and God bless them, you know, uh, they started running their own kind of a meeting. It's a proprietary meeting. And they just, if I think about this, I really try to boil it down. They um, did a better job running the meetings than we as a society. And that that makes sense because they have some institutional memory from year to year, what works, what doesn't work, how to deal with the vendors, the relationships. You know, you think about our, our AFPRS fall meetings or even the aging phase, you put up three new, three new reg, uh, directors and they may not have a lot of experience running a meeting. How can we compete with that? So, so as you fast forward, you have these meetings now and you know, a couple of our colleagues who run these meetings very successfully have sold them to private equity in different groups. Um, and now all of a sudden these and, and we're talking serious money. Right. I mean, you know, we don't need to throw numbers out there, but serious money, because when you look at what the vendors are paying to be there and now the doctors as creatures of habit and we like to talk and maybe some of the and I don't want to pick on the young guys, but, you know, looking at it as a photo op, you know, to get up there and I'm, I'm the new I'm talking about my facelift technique. I've been in practice two years, but I get this face. The people are coming from all over. Right. And so, you know, and then the the, the industry feels like they've got to be at these meetings and now. The doctors are coming. They may get their room paid for, but we're not getting, quote, paid. Um, and yet, you know, whoever's running these meetings is making a fortune on them. Um, we've got, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, 
companies that is pay to play everything. Um, so how does one respond to that? And I got to give you a lot of credit because I asked you to speak on a panel at one of the meetings and you said, you know what, Ed, I'm, I'm done doing this stuff for free. Uh, if it's the academy stuff, I'm in, but I'm done doing this. And, and I, I really respected that. I want to hear your thoughts on all this. And where, you know, where's the future? Right. Yeah. Thank you. Number one, thank you for understanding when I had mentioned that to you earlier. And this has been been getting to me for a while now. And I just, I finally, in, in I spoke with my wife, I spoke with my partner, and I, I've really kind of turned inward and said, you know, I help. I am asked to help sometimes people, very unfortunate people who've been in accidents, who've had cancers and things like that. And I use my education and my expertise and my years of experience with my hands and and to counsel them and that type of thing. And I fully expect payment in return from their insurance company or from their deductible or from their copay. I have a hard time expecting payment from someone who has been subject to misfortune of disease and injury and things, but yet for me, I'm told to use my years of experience, my expertise, and my education for the profit of a large company for free. I mean, I, I, I've, I've come, I've kind of, that's been hard for me to reconcile, and there is becoming more and more and more of them. And because, like you said, they're, they're, they're better at running a meeting. I give them full credit. I, I have enjoyed their meetings and the colleagues that have, have started them, more power to them. I can, I still consider them friends. Maybe they don't consider me friends after saying such a thing, but I, but I really honestly do consider them friends. But I have to say that they are contributing to the destruction of of our nonprofit academic, truly academic meetings. Well, I think it, that's where the downfall of some of our academy meetings, for example, kind of slipping in some of the in some of the processes and some of the opportunities they have to you know to teach. They're falling behind these other for-profit meetings because they are for-profit and they are using uh, some of us as as talent essentially for free and and I've I've come to the point where I I think I'm I'm just going to I'm going to stand up to that. I I will still do whatever I can for the, the 5013C that I am uh, you know, very much a member of the Academy of Face, American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery is a nonprofit organization who helps educate the education of facial plastic surgery and the board certification of such. And I'm, I'm completely on board to help with that. That has helped me over many years, but the, the large the amount of millions of dollars that are rolling through these international and national meetings, fully expecting me, calling me. I mean, I get a request nearly every other week or week to do to speak or to run this section or to moderate this panel or to be on this panel or provide this information. And then I finally reached a point where, wait a minute, if I'm expecting payment from, you know, Joe Smith down the road who went through a car window and I fixed them and I used my expertise to do that, why am I using my expertise yeah. over here for free so this multi-million dollar yeah. company profits? No, I got it. And, and to take it a step further, um, Brent, I, 
you know, one of the things is I am running one of these, and again, at one of these meetings, and I've done it for our, you know, as you know, I've been very involved with the academy, but, um, you know, so I, I'm getting these emails from the organizers of the meeting, making sure that I give, you know, so-and-so the amount of podium time, because of course they're writing a big check to, you know, whether it's under, and what I have a problem with is that now they are basically dictating what we tell each other. Um, so, you know, I, I'll tell you an anecdotal story. I had, so I had someone from industry and I'm, I've been picking choosing these cause I do not want industry influence. And I, um, and I'm asking tough questions on this podcast, but I asked someone, uh, who I had on pod, a podcast last week. I don't think there was, I think it went great, but someone in the industry and we got a call back and they really don't want me to air it because they said some things that, you know, might offend, you know, X. And I'm like, wait, that's the whole point of this. You, you know, to be honest with each other. Um, so they wanted to know if I would, they wanted to know if I would re record the podcast. And I told Cassie <laughs> over my dead body, I took my, an hour of my time to ask these questions, you know, give them some airtime. And now they're, you know, they want to control the message. And this is what, this was infuriates me. So what is a young, you know, a young physician to do here? I mean, the, the problem is they feel like they're getting their, they're getting, you know, maybe some really good educational content at the meetings, Yet, um, I mean, how do you, how do you, how, what would you, advice would you give to someone who's been out 10 years? Uh, I, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a dilemma. It is a dilemma. And, and number one, see these things for what they really are. And if you want to participate, you're, you're free, freely welcome to it. But if you're being used, please look deeply into this and see if you are, for that matter, doing so and there is nothing wrong with stepping up to say i'm a speaker i am talent i am i essentially a performer i'm an expert in this field and you're asking me to speak here um you know some i think in response to that you know one could be paid for that i think if enough people finally see these things for what they really are i think profits will shrink not very much with those meetings, but it will make it worth it for physicians and experts like ourselves to participate in those things again. Yeah. You know, I mean, perhaps it's paying my expenses. Perhaps I'm not, I'm not trying to make millions of dollars, you know, speaking at these meetings. I, that's not, that's not what I'm after. I just mean that using us as performers, you know, while well, letting letting them dictate our message just I think is wrong, and yeah. at some point we have to say, you know what, I'm going to pass. Yeah. So, so tell me, uh, what what projects just are you working on? Uh, just give me. Uh, we only have about four or five minutes left, so I would. Sure. But I want to. What's what are you? What's kind of keeping you up, or not keeping you up? But what are you? What are you jacked up over? What are you working on? Yeah. Well, I I love what I do. I still love what I do, but I'm also an entrepreneur. So I'm involved. There's a new startup company near here. There's a need for rural uh, physician coverage in emergency rooms and that type of thing. And so I'm a partner or a. a, a uh, part of a startup company called Apollo Technologies, which is has a, um, a now provisionally patented uh, software, a matching algorithm for matching residents and and doctors with with a rural staffing need, and that company is growing quickly, and that's exciting. So it's been it's been fun to get help, you know, with some advice on getting that off the ground and be part of the board 
on that. And then um, stem cell and progenitor cell technology have been um, part of a company called Regenics. Um, that's a, a nationwide. I think there's uh, 48 now different locations nationwide with that. And, um, and that has grown and grown and uh, shows promising aspects in the future with progenitor cells and super concentrated platelets and those types of things. But I'm part of those two companies as well. And that's been fun. Very cool. And and doing more and more of the cosmetic, elective, artistic stuff that I love and spending more time with patients and mm-hmm. that uh, patients that I like and that I can help. So what's your what's fun. your biggest uh, right now? I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, that's you know, it's funny. Entrepreneurs can't help themselves. Right. They got to find. I agree. Stuff, you know? yeah, absolutely. I call it batting at shiny objects, you know, but that's how raccoons get caught in traps at night. Uh, <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Um, any, what are, what are the, the, the things that kind of in your own business that kind of keep you up at night or you, you worry about, you think about, we all have those things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I still to this day, and I, I will honestly say this, I do a surgery and I go home and I worry about that patient. Yeah. I go home and I, I hope that she is okay. I hope that she is healing well already. I hope that she's not in pain. I hope that she's not nauseated. I go home and I think about that. And I I tell young medical students and residents, if you ever reach a point where you don't care anymore, it's time to move on. Yeah. And I'm I'm grateful that I still I still feel that way. I go yeah. home and I worry about the proverbial Mrs. Nussbaum that I operated on that day, and that I hope she's okay. Yeah. And it's still fun to come in in the next next morning and and see her, you know, doing well, and she's going to turn out great. So no, I I, I can't I can't uh, echo that enough. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, uh, at a resident and a fellow were with me and. And I did a rhinoplasty and a pretty straightforward, you know, in my hands kind of thing after, you know, almost 30 years and thousands. Um, you know, I went, I, there was something about it that just, that I wasn't happy. And I thought about that whole, it ruined my weekend. You know, I thought about it, you know, and uh, I, you know, the next week I said to my staff, which I haven't done in years, uh, I said, you know, listen, I want to take her splint off. I, I need to see that nose, you know, first. But I, you know, it it also does wear you down a little bit. But it is what um, I think when you when you stop caring like that, you do need to get out of out of the, out of the business. I agree completely. I will still go to that hotel room if I'm concerned. I will go over to the to the overnight suite and check things out. You know, and yeah. it doesn't. I think when you lose that, it's time to move on to something something yeah. different, perhaps. Agree. One more parting question. Okay. Yeah. Think about. Being, uh, you know, out five, 10, 10 years and maybe maybe not quite 15. But what advice would you give a young facial plastic surgeon, plastic surgeon um, trying to compete in this crazy environment? What would you what would advice would you give them? You know, words of wisdom, pearls, thinking back of what you know now. I would I would say always 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 be grateful and remember what you wrote on your medical school application essay because there's a reason we ended up here and as frustrating as insurance might be or as as what money may begin to mean to you and and things like that remember what you wrote in that essay because that's really why you're still doing this and just be grateful that you have the chance to do it 
And when, when a parent hands you their little girl and says, here, cut into her face, I'm trusting you. Make sure you know how much of an honor that is yeah. and tell them thank you. So, yeah, I, uh, no, I, I think I think that's I think that's great. Uh, great advice. I you know, you're an inspiration. Um, you know, I love to hear, okay, hear you speak. Well, not everyone feels that way. You know, I, I do feel that I get every, every morning. I, I sit there in bed for a few minutes and just try to think of all the things I'm grateful for. And the fact uh -huh. that people trust us is incredible. Um, and you know, you never want to take that take that for granted. Uh, same kind of thing when you, when all of a sudden you start taking it for granted. It's time to get out. But um, I agree. I think if you truly believe that and you truly stick with it, the success will come. Yeah, it just will. And I think that's really great advice because in this crazy, hyper competitive, you know, environment where everybody looks like they're everything on social media, it, it, the, at the end of the day, when you take really good care of people. I'm sure you've had this experience. You haven't seen someone in 20 years and they come back and they say, you know, uh, you know, I'm back here because I totally trust you, you know, and uh, you tell me what I need. You, you know, that's a very different consult than, you know, somebody who just comes off the Internet. Um, Absolutely. So, listen, I, I knew I wouldn't be disappointed having you on. Uh, <laughs> oh, Brent, great, and uh, hopefully I'll see you at the ski meeting you. or one of the upcoming meetings. But folks have been talking to Dr. Brent Cook, who's in Iowa. Thank and, you, everyone, uh, for listening. This has just been fantastic, Ed. Yeah, thank well, you. Thank you. My, my my mission here is to is to really uh, you know help younger people. Uh, I've I'm always been passionate about business. I don't think that's any secret. But um, but but to do it in an unfiltered way, so we're not just getting what the industry. Like I said, we could talk. I've got podcasts coming up about marketing. I mean, there have been disaster after disaster, and so many <laughs> physicians get taken advantage of. So I think that we need sure. to stick together. Um, on this. So thanks again, uh, Brent. I really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome. And um, I'll see you soon with a meeting. All right. All right, buddy. Thanks again, Thank man. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.